0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, we've got a double feature for you. Later on, we'll be hearing from Mickey Huff of the media watchdog group Project Censored about his organization's latest book, Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2023. But first, Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window returns to discuss the Silicon Valley bank collapse and the state of the economy. So with that being said, let's get right to it. The hot story, the Silicon Valley bank collapse with Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Welcome back to Parallax Views, friend of the show, Uh, Always a great conversation. Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. It's good to talk with you. So, Mike, the reason I wanted to have you on, and I know we're not going to necessarily talk about this specifically in that much detail, but maybe the bigger picture around it, uh, the Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, I got tongue-tied there for a second, uh, the Silicon Valley bank run. uh, What has happened with (laughs) this? Because I've been focused so much on foreign policy news lately, that this like completely blindsided me. And I have, you know, so many listeners that want to hear about it. And I almost feel ill-equipped because I've had my eyes on other things. So, what is going on with the Silicon Valley bank run that happened?
1: Well, I mean, obviously it's 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 the new cycle item uh, I would guess the past couple of days. All the turmoil it's caused in the financial markets, the Federal Reserve has done an incredible. Uh, intervention in in the banking system, some are calling it a bailout. Uh, The website Axios has said they've nationalized the banking system, and that's a mainstream uh, news website, I would say. I don't think that's true. Uh, What they have done, though, is they have came out uh, over the weekend of a plan in reaction to this giant failure. I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal, and this is the uh, they have i yeah, I'm looking at the front page, I want to give you the figures right here. But they had assets of 209 billion. This is the biggest bank failure since, since 2008. Um, and then other banks failed. There's a crypto bank that failed a week or two before this one. And, um, <laughs> in the afternoon on Friday, bank stocks, small regional bank stocks, were crashing. 30, 40, 50 percent um, and regional bank stocks are like local banks. Uh, I myself have bank accounts, you know, checking accounts at two local banks that are classified as regional banks. So that that's a I wasn't uh, I'll tell you how I reacted to it in a second uh, to give you an idea of what I really think about all this and, and the the bigger importance of it all. But this Federal Reserve stepped in. So, what happened to the Silicon Valley Bank? Uh, it specialized in lending to so called technology startups, crypto companies, uh, venture capital firms. Right. Many I was going to say were... our
0: friends in the tech bro world, who uh, I know you've often been very critical of. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that that was my reaction. I don't. I, I'm, I'm skeptical of these people. I don't. I think people worship them too much. And I, I've made a headline story: Tech Bro Bank, you know, causes this chaos basically because I like to make fun of them. But what happened was their the the value on their as the value on their balance sheet, their assets declined uh, last year by roughly 20%, I'm looking at the figures. And at the same time, people withdrew money slowly. And then uh, this month, they tried to withdraw $40 billion. The bank didn't have enough uh, on hand (laughs) liquid liquid, uh, assets to, to pay this, so it failed. And the danger was people see this failure and they get scared is my bank going to fail or this other or you know what other banks are going to fail and so all these bank stocks were basically crashing and the fed announced that they would backstop all banks <laughs> by uh there's FDIC insurance if you have a bank deposit it's insured up to $250,000 because of this FDIC FDIC insurance the fed said we will now help banks if they need to, um, you know, pay off their depositors, all banks by creating an emergency lending program that if you give, if your bank you give them this, you know, some collateral, they'll basically give you an interest-free loan, and this program is going to be in effect for 12 months. So that action is what Axios was calling bank nationalization. I, I would disagree with that characterization because it's a 12-month program, you know. Um, and they did let this bank fail here. It, it, Silicon Valley Bank is is going to vanish. Uh, so I, I don't think this is not exactly like 2008. It's quite quite different in some ways. <laughs> it's 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 um it's happened more suddenly. Um, I used to trade a hedge fund 16 years ago and trade my own money. In 2008, uh, people watched that Big Short movie. It's a great explanation of what really happened there. But I was aware in January 2008 of banking problems that these mortgages, subprime mortgages were zero, that represent 10% of the balance sheet. And I knew that for 10 months before it mattered, (laughs) before the stock market reacted to it. And here, one of the interesting things to me about this story is uh, it happened so suddenly and spread the contagion spread so suddenly too so why do you think it happens so suddenly can you speculate on that i'm not really sure um okay it's it's well let me step back and to answer that question um the cause of this is different um so in 2008 these these securities are worth nothing that these banks own and it represented 10 percent of their balance sheets. These and these were insured uh, giant investment banks. Um, you know, they're they getting these subprime securities and and buying them, putting them on their balance sheets and so forth. This is much different. Um, and these are, like I said, local regional banks. And in 2008, these banks had no problems at all. Um, in fact, there are voices at that time saying, let Wall Street fail. There's nothing wrong with the local bank. This time, it's flipped. And the reason why this has happened is that um, the Silicon Valley Bank is an extreme situation. It seems like the people they're lending to were shaky. Um, but your the local banks where I live, they also saw their balance sheets fall in value. Now they're lending out to people buying homes and, and small businesses and stuff. But I went and looked before talking with you, um, and I looked at the sort of the weekend too, but I wanted to get the figures right. But there's a, low, a regional bank where, where I live, its assets shrank by 5% last year. And what happened was, you know, most about everybody that's in the stock market. Uh, with the four hundred one k or or any any if it's five thousand dollars or five hundred thousand, they lost money last year. The average person lost twenty two percent. And most people, you know, you go to an investment advisor, they'll say put half your money in stocks, put half your money in bonds, in bond funds. Well, both of those fell last year. In two thousand eight, the bond funds went up uh, in value. The, the, the like treasury bonds went up. Uh, in this time, bonds fell and these bonds, treasury bonds, corporate bonds, but the local banks really put most of their, their balance sheet as treasury bonds and they're actually, the banks are ordered by law to own, you know, they have to own these things. Well, these treasury bonds have fallen in value in the past two years and uh, or past year and a half. So that's what's made the balance sheets drop. And the reason the bonds fall in value is they trade of interest rates. So as interest rates have gone up, the value of these bonds have fallen and, and causing the balance sheets to, to, to decline. So there's lots of these regional banks. They've done nothing wrong, uh, in a sense, risk they're not doing risky things, but because of the value of their assets have fallen, it, it, you know, in theory, you know, people could worry. Uh, that they might not be able to pay all their depositors if they they were asked to get their money. So it's a a very dangerous situation that uh, I would say isn't a shock. Um, In the 1970s, bonds fell in value and banks saw their balance sheets decline, too. Uh, What's interesting is these bank stocks were going up uh, since October, and then in three days they just just collapsed like like the nineteen eighty seven stock market crash or something. So so to me that that's the you know the sudden thing that that is you know uh, different than uh, an unusual and the explanation is I guess complacency of stock market traders and investors. They may know these problems are, or could exist. Um, and I knew they existed, because uh, I knew what happened in the 70s, and um, I mean, so the news doesn't shock me. But when the stocks go up, you just think, oh, everyone's ignoring it, it doesn't matter, or maybe, it, maybe yeah, maybe it doesn't matter, because at the same time, these banks, are, are, they can make more revenue with, with higher rates. Um, but when this, <laughs> even, even with the balance sheet shrinking.
0: So I know before we started talking and recording here, uh, you said that you have some bigger things that you're worried about than just uh, the Silicon Valley Bank itself and its sort of collapse. Uh, Could you delve more into that?
1: Yeah, and this leads directly into it. So uh, we've had, everyone knows, (laughs) if you buy anything, uh, we've had a serious problem with inflation uh, over the past basically two years. Uh, The CPI annualized official government statistics uh, hit levels not seen since 1981. The price of food has gone up about 30% in the grocery store, I'd say, over the past two years. And historically, inflation doesn't go down and stay down until the Federal Reserve raises interest rates above the CPI Annualized inflation rate. Well, they've been raising rates off of the zero level um, over a year now to get above the CPI level, and they haven't gotten there yet. And to, as of today, the annualized CPI is 6%. Um, and the Fed, the Federal Reserve, you know, interest rate is, isn't at 5% yet. Um, and now with this bank problem uh that has erupted the FED is likely to stop raising interest rates perhaps they'll raise one more time a quarter point uh but that's the the market saying that's a 50 50 chance and even if they do uh they're not likely to get to that six percent level um so I'm afraid they're not going to really be able to defeat inflation. And it may slow down. It probably will. uh, But, you know, it's probably going to come back even bigger than we've seen it at some point, you know, in in six months or 12 months or sometime down the road. And um, that's, I think, the problem people have to worry about. Not this is going to crash all banks. You're not going to go get your money out.
0: So you're worried about Mm -hmm. the
1: inflation continuing? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I would say, too, you know, that. I thought this one thought I had today is, look, if we didn't have FDIC insurance, uh, which there wasn't in the 1930s, we probably would have a real banking collapse. But because we do, you know, there's no rational reason to be scared that you're not going to get your money out if if a bank fails. You know, just as this is seeing with the Silicon Valley Bank, people are getting their money.
0: So uh, in terms of the whole uh, tech bro aspect, you've been very critical of the sort of uh, tech bro triumphalism and even tech bro utopianism. Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what your issues are with the sort of tech bro culture and uh, the the sort of Silicon Valley triumphalism, Uh, because I I think a lot of my listeners on the left uh, share your views on that. And uh, I know a lot of people are responding to the Silicon Valley bank thing with sort of... um, schadenfreude towards the tech bros saying oh this is hilarious watching these uh tech bros get upset about their dubious vc funded app company getting screwed now so <laughs>
1: well it's just yeah, yeah i've been in trading the stock market since the late 90s and i saw the internet bubble um and uh and that was my reduction to to this to the world of finance is this internet bubble. and I watched that implode. and a lot of these companies back then were jokes. then um, it was so crazy. I mean I would get you could look at the prospectus of some of these companies that were trading on the stock market towards the end of it. and one of them uh it was located in a um a closet. <laughs> you know, and it was trading on the NASDAQ. And you know that I saw that bubble you know go away and then the real estate thing happened. Uh, but uh, now it's even to me it, it, the past couple years is in, in some ways even sillier. Uh, but it's different in another way. In, in the 90s, there was even despite these internet stocks and so many failed, you know the internet was a revolutionary thing it was new it was it, it did change our society for good and bad um but now the way i the way i feel about it is um the economy is nowhere like it was in the 1990s um you know for people um it, it's very difficult to get ahead i mean I, I was in a graduate history degree in the nineties in the and I don't even know what the future of academia for history is anymore. You know, the, the price of going to college is skyrocketed. We're just in a, you know, we've seen, we're just such in a weird time of turmoil and, the, the, and it's hard for people. And
0: yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, between inflation and then I don't know if you've been following up on this stuff with the, um uh the train derailment that happened with East oh, Palestine, sure. Ohio. I mean, I, and you have hearings about it in Congress. And as the hearings are happening, there's another train derailment. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. <clears throat> I mean, this could just be me getting too caught up into the news cycle. But sometimes I feel like we're living in, like, an emerging-filled state when I read these news articles.
1: Well, I mean, that's the that's the example now. Like, all those wildfires in California, it's like something that's always – every you know this bank thing it's it's like it'll go away and something else will happen but you know while all this is our daily lives and what we see in the news um so many people are like deify these tech billionaires and and they talk all this utopia stuff and to me it's just fantasy and silliness um and i think a lot of it they do to Hype themselves up in order to get people to buy their stocks or invest, invest with uh, whatever their next venture is. Uh, I think that's what Elon Musk's whole stick is, and then Facebook did a similar thing uh, when it's the, when the growth of the Facebook website or app, whatever you want to call it, stopped. They shifted to telling you the metaverse is their future, their company. And it sounds like taken. there's a lot of carny hucksterism going on. Like,
0: oh, we need to find our mark to buy into this. And then we'll move on to the next thing when that doesn't grow anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that, that's what they're doing. And, and and what I see as being someone that looks at the financial media is that um, these financial media people, whether they're on television or on YouTube, they grasp onto these things, too. And hype yeah, I think up. we've
0: seen that with people like Jim Cramer, uh, and then Jim Cramer yeah. inevitably has to apologize later on. I was wrong about this. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's even it's even worse on YouTube. I mean, there's people on YouTube that just you know, they they just grasp onto Tesla or Metaverse, and now it's AI. You know, AI is the new thing that's just going to change the whole world and do all this and do that. And then I read a editorial in in the New York Times from them uh, written by Noam Chomsky who you know, is an expert on language saying this is not going to change hardly anything.
0: Yeah, it's not really, I mean, I hate that term AI, <clears throat> like artificial intelligence, because I mean, to yeah. me, it's, I think it's more apt to call this like machine learning. It's not like we have like a sentient intelligence that can think for right. itself. This is really just deep machine learning.
1: <laughs> right, right. And in, 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 in like I was, Talking about this with some, a friend of mine that is, you know, that talks about. He's, we were talking about writing articles. Well, he's like, "This is going to replace writers." Well, it's not, because you still have to have an idea. You know, even if you tell this gizmo to write for you, you got to tell it what to write. You know, or else, I mean, so what? It's something spit out words. It doesn't so what. You know, so well, it's it's really like it, you know what I mean. I've played around with this whole Chat
0: GPT thing. And really what I'm yeah. noticing is it's really just collating uh, all this data from like the search engines and then spitting it back out at you. So really, it's like, uh, you know, it's it's like the it's like uh, basically an app that is is having you, the monkey, look back in the mirror at yourself because it's just throwing back all the stuff we've already written, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's not. And also, it gets a lot of things wrong. I would not say to use it for research. <laughs> Because, you know, I, I will do research for a show and I'll be like, hey, Chet, GBT, can you give me information on this subject? And if it, especially if it's like a newer subject, it'll just give me wrong data points. It won't know what it's talking right. about. I, I was uh, researching for a show um, on Team Jorge, this uh, private contractor from the Israeli private contractor firm. And I was asking it for background information on the uh, guy that runs it, uh, Tal Hanan. And it was saying, oh, he has a sister company called the Iron Dome. I'm thinking to myself, (laughs) Iron Dome is the defense system in Israel. It's not a company. Like he has nothing to do with that. So it doesn't even necessarily give you the right information. But people are talking about it like this is the be all end all. You see what I mean? Like it doesn't even – it will often give incorrect information.
1: Yeah, that, that, all these techno things are like that. I mean, I, I don't know. I know I talk about Bitcoin all uh, frequently, but yeah, you know, the thing about Bitcoin is the people that were really into it, they were talking like all these things. It's always the same. This one thing is going to change the entire world. It's a revolution. So if people just bought Bitcoin, they can make a revolution. And I'm like, well, you know, not not really. That's not how you do a revolution. And to me, you know, buying a stock isn't going to do a revolution no more than if I go in a sports book and and, and bet on the Lakers or something. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just a, don't get me wrong,
0: by the way. I'm not saying that like these uh, technologies don't have function. I think there is use for this chat GPT sure. thing, but like the way people make it out to be that we're on the cusp of the final <laughs> technological revolution. It's like when Aldous Huxley gave the speech about the ultimate revolution. That's what these people are doing. They're talking about it like this is the be-all, end-all. And if you say, well, it feels more like a parlor trick at times what we're seeing here, uh, people just will lose their minds and be like, why do you hate progress? Why do you hate technology? And I, I don't hate this technology. I'm just saying you're, you're being hyped up to a degree that I think is – beyond the capabilities of what this tech can do right now in the present moment. I don't know what it can do in the future, but you know, it's all speculation too, you know, like, yes, this, this can do great things, this chat GPT, but we shouldn't over uh, hype what it can do right now. And we don't know what it's going to be able to do in the future.
1: Yeah. And frankly, I find it more humorous, you know, now, I mean, I try like on Facebook, my my personal account to make fun of, you know these things because it's just to me just kind of funny and silly but but whatever you know but um yeah but people have a false sense of empowerment through all this stuff too um you know the the whole thing about the robin hood training was it was a perfect example of that um here's an app it's supposed to you know, you're going to be equal to Wall Street. They were telling you two years ago, and it turns out, you know, that people just lose their money. (laughs) But, you know, it's just like like all these new things or whatever the technology is, is going to solve all your problems. Why do you you think people forgot about the Robinhood app? Like, it's almost like
0: we've learned no lesson from that whole fiasco.
1: I I don't know, you know. Um, No one even talks about it anymore, do they? People just, you know, the accounts. They, I know, I don't have the figures in front of me as of now, but you know, they lost at least half their customers. know um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, it's it's. I I just kind of think like the story today. You know, the, the news cycle goes so quickly that we just forget everything. And you know, as I just was thinking about this this bank story, uh, is this this is a big event? I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, and I think it's gonna have huge repro re- it will have repercussions. The the Fed probably will stop raising interest rates if if they aren't going to do it anymore. But also these banks themselves, I mean, even though I was saying I'm not worried about them, you know, this massive bank bank failure, it's very likely that um a lot of these local banks, just banks in general, are gonna start foreclosing on people in order to. You know, I, I just can see it happening because, um, you know, they, they need to do something to, to, to boost their earnings, their balance sheets, the CEOs, the people running the banks, their stocks have crashed and they're going to want to tell their board members, oh, this is what we're going to do now. I, I think they'll start, you know, foreclosing on people. They will they probably will be more cautious in, in lending. So these kind of things can affect the economy. Um mm. I think that that'll be the economic impact, not you know, like this is they're going to close. You won't be able to get your money out. So going back
0: to the conversation we were having at the beginning of uh, of this discussion, uh, w- with regards to comparing, you know, what has happened with the Silicon Valley Valley Bank and 2008. Uh, there's all this talk of billouts Can you just, uh, I guess, readdress that really quickly? The issue of billouts and whatnot.
1: Well, I mean in 2008, when they they they, they only let a couple banks fail. Uh, Lehman Brothers went away uh for, for example, Lehman Brothers was the real big one and uh well, what was the one in in March that year? uh anyway, there, there's a couple a couple big ones, but not but that was it. They stopped after Lehman Brothers they stopped. And they did bail these people out in the sense that um, they didn't let the banks fail. They, The Fed set up that TARP lending program, did this QE, bought the assets off the bank's balance sheets uh, that were worth zero and gave them money for them. Um, and, and, and the bank CEOs then went on to give themselves bonuses and and, and so forth. So it was a you know, really is a scandal and um, they could have done what they're doing now, which they are letting the Silicon Valley bank fail. That's why I don't call it a bailout like like 2008. Um, however, they are, they are guaranteeing deposits. They are taking action, which uh, I don't think uh, has ever been done before. I don't think the Fed has ever said we're going to create this special lending program. So if you go, if you need to pay people beyond that FDIC insurance, we're, we're there for you. That That is pretty, uh that is a new thing. So, I mean, it, it, it is a serious action by the government, but it, it's not, it's not the same as 2008.
0: Yeah. Real quick. I, I should clarify what I said earlier because I don't want to get my facts wrong. When I mentioned the Abacus bank, I just meant that, uh, They were like aggressively prosecuted uh, compared to the other banks. Um, I I still think they're around. So it's not like they went under anything. But um, uh, what I was going to say is, do you think this like special lending program and this Fed intervention uh, is going to cause a backlash? Because I'm already seeing people call this a bailout, and there's people I know that are very upset about it. Um, Do you think they should be upset about it or do you think they're overreacting? What's your general take on that?
1: Uh well I was looking today at some you know I, I know I'm not reading these stories I just see the headlines uh look but supposedly on Fox News uh they were blaming the this failure on the bank being woke somehow and this <laughs> made them make bad investments and then I was looking at some libertarian uh websites like the Mises Institute and they were blaming it on uh, the Federal Reserve interest rate policies, creating bubbles and so forth. Um, and yeah, that's that's
0: interesting because I'm I'm seeing I, like I'm looking at like Jacobin right now, and they have an article by yeah. um, uh, Branko Martich, uh who's been on my show before. But he's looking at it like you know Silicon Bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. The, this was all their fault. It was corruption, financial recklessness, poor decision-making. Uh, and he's sort of arguing that, like, what? Why, why should there be this special lending program for them? So you have all these different uh, groups, like the libertarian end uh, with von Mises. You have Fox News saying, oh, it's the woke banks. You have the left saying, oh, screw these banks. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, everyone, you know, which is so common nowadays uh, with any topic, I guess, but they're all spinning this to fit their narrative or or the talking points that they almost always use or the, the issues they care about, I guess, might be the better way to put it. In some cases, they may have some arguments, but... I just tell you, I mean, my initial response to this, <laughs> I was, I was on, uh, I got a colonoscopy Friday morning. <laughs> I had to go to the doctor, to get a colonoscopy. So the night before, the stock market was falling. This was a little bit in the news, but I wasn't. I couldn't pay attention because I'm taking the prep, and then I go to, the, to get the operation and get. A, come home, and the first thing I did was turn on this the television, and the headline appeared about about the bank, you know, and I said, well, I guess I'm going to go to sleep and then wake up and sell a lot of stuff. But I wasn't scared, you know, because I knew they they wouldn't let the regional banking system fail. So it's it's more than just this one bank. Uh, If they let the regional banking system fail, you know, thousands of local banks across the United States, we would be in a Great Depression environment. I mean, that's what caused the Great Depression.
0: It sounds so like I, your concern is these regional banks and, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, Silicon yeah. Valley Bank, it's glass, it's done, it's gone. You know, you yeah. can refer to it now in Wikipedia as Silicon Valley Bank was rather than Silicon Valley Bank is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'm not I, I don't know. If, I'm not I can't say I'm angry about it. I mean, it's <laughs> I do agree with the, these Mises people in, in the sense that, you know, it's it's it is it is low interest rate policies, it's a giant bubble that, you know, has been fueled over years. And and I think it's just starting, it started to come unwind, and, you know, the process of unwinding it, you know, it began over probably a year ago, you know, when the stock market peaked out. And I think that's going to go on for a long time, unfortunately. And this is just one event in it. And I don't, I don't think there's anything the government can really do to uh, to stop it. It's just, uh, you know, when they, when they I, I agree with them that when you make interest rate policy zero, and 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 spend a decade after 2008 doing QE programs, you're going to create bubbles, and and uh, that's what we got, and it's just a mess. So do, it's just, do you
0: think what I uh, mentioned earlier with I guess some voices on the left saying you know the, the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you know that they, they exhibited like financial recklessness, poor decision making. Do you think that's all? fair to make that argument
1: it's well it's probably true because what happens there's there's a saying uh i've heard i think war maybe war buffett coined it uh i'm not gonna get it right but basically when the tide goes out you see who doesn't have any pants on <laughs> meaning that the upper you have wears the no pair,
0: clothes right <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. When 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 the when the when the bear market comes and and financial conditions tighten, it is the riskiest um, banks, funds, investors that go under. Um, And that's so. I I would say that they're probably absolutely correct that these this was probably you know the biggest riskiest bank and and you know you're supposedly. That uh, they were lending to these tech bro companies that don't make any money. In venture capital fund firms, uh, the mean, tech startups, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, the local banks, you know, where I live, they lend to people that have jobs, they have an income, uh, and and they're paying, you know, their um, their mortgages. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, they're they're probably right. And it was a crypto bank that failed before this one, uh, too. Uh, a week or two before.
0: So in closing here, uh, I I know you can't, you know, stare into a crystal ball and predict the future, but what do you think the biggest problems are going forward, the uh, potential crises we could be facing when it comes to the economy?
1: Well, the odds have increased that there will be, that we're on the, that there's a Banks are likely okay, so, to tighten. Their-
0: so you cut out. I don't know if the NSA is listening or oh. maybe tech bros are then, uh, wanting us not to speak about this. But you cut out when you said <laughs> the odds are increasing.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the odds are increasing that there's a recession coming uh, because banks are going to tighten their lending conditions. There's something called the yield curve that's been a, 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 a historically is an accurate recessionary signal. It it flashed about six months ago and it tends to indicate there's a recession um, six to like 20 months in the future. Um, and and it's so my, my fear is there will be a recession, not like a depression or something, but a slowdown in the, in the economy. And then out of that, there'll be another lot of inflation like, like we've experienced uh, or have been experiencing. So, so th- those are my real concerns going forward uh, about it. I I don't know if you can answer this, but, um, you
0: know, we've talked in the past about how there seems to be these problems that exist just within the, the, the way the system operates. Um, you know, I know you mentioned Peter Till, uh, sort of alluding to that in speeches where he talked about, you know, there, there's issues with the way capitalism operates in the U S and it's creating these problems and contradictions that we can't, uh, really deal with? Do you think that's still the case? Um, yeah. I forget I, it I was mean, exactly I, what you were saying that in reference to last time we spoke, but I think you know what I mean, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I so the the libertarian uh, Austrian economics type of thing that they lay out is that the Federal Reserve is the cause of the imbalances we have in the economy, the bubbles, so to speak. Um, And they have the theory that the problem is the Federal Reserve tries to control interest rates and no one knows the perfect rate of interest. So they're prone to make mistakes and they err to being too uh, expansionary with monetary policy uh, because they don't want to risk blowback from causing recessions and the history of interest rate policy, you know, seems to is evidence of that, but it's not, I don't think complete proof that that's a total uh, answer to the cause of the problem. So um, I, I'm not exactly clear what Peter Thiel meaning is and the things he says, but um, I would say that there does appear to be, or there has, I don't know that it's an appearance, there's been too much capital that's been created over at least since the 90s.
0: Right, right. And, that's what I was trying to get you to talk about a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: There's too much capital that's been created, and that's the cause of the bubbles. The The, 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 the Austrian people say that's caused, the too much capital is caused by the Fed. But, uh, you know, I'm not a Marxist expert. I've only read a little bit on it. And and from what I understand, a a more left-wing type argument is that uh, the companies make profit. Uh, Some of it they redistribute into their business. If they make a lot of profit, then they don't really have a good place to put it. So they have to invest it in securities um and, and play that game and that's what companies have been doing they've been doing these stock buybacks uh some just buy bonds of other companies and, and so forth and uh so i think it's a it's a good question is is the excess capital caused by the Fed or is it caused by the fact that the capitalist firms I suppose have gotten so big and dominated the economy so much that they have problems finding good places to make meaningful investments in their own business, so they're forced into speculation, um, and and that seems to be really a big part of it. It's, yeah, it's that, such that a, then
0: that they're forced into speculation that leads to speculative bubbles, and it it's almost yeah. like a snowball effect.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and, and the thing about the Fed is, what I you know, I, like I said, I started out in the nineties. And in, in, I encountered Ron Paul talking about this Austrian economics theory, and I thought that's a great explanation. But now, you know, um, the thing about it is the as time has gone on, it seems to me that the Federal Reserve is, especially the past couple of years, is not so much driving interest rate policy and and, and doing all these things, but simply responding to events all the time and um even the changes in interest rates seem to be just reactions to what the bond markets doing and not them directing things
0: it's it's um, almost like they're being confronted by a behemoth that they can't really control they're they're trying to react to like 500 different things at once so they can't really yeah. direct everything yeah
1: yeah that's that's what i've come to believe and in fact um at one time a couple of years ago, that the Fed re- released transcripts of all their meetings, and I went back and looked at the meeting they had when Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard in the '70s, and they didn't know he was going to do it. And in the minutes, they they were saying, "Oh, this is just be for a couple of weeks." Well, well, what? That was one of the biggest changes in. In monetary history for the United States, and it wasn't just a couple of weeks; it, was, it went on forever. So that it's just—it's uh, so complex, the economy and the financial system, that you know I, they can't even predict or or, or run it. Uh, is the way it seems to me. <laughs>
0: So in closing, how can my listeners keep up with your work at Wall Street Window and maybe give them an idea of what they can find on Wall Street Window? I know you have you do a lot of stuff um, that's really local to Danville, Virginia, but uh, just talk about uh, – just plug your work, basically.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I run this website, Wall Street Window. It started out as a stock trading financial website. It, it still is. So if you go there, you'll see articles about that. It's updated every single day. But – I've branched out also into things I'm interested in, uh, geopolitics, and even, as you mentioned, uh, local news a little bit. Yeah, we should doesn't... mention
0: your books, uh, Why the Vietnam War, and before that, The, the War State, right?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and so you those... dealt with a lot
0: with the Vietnam War and the military-industrial complex and the evolution yep. of the military-industrial complex.
1: Yeah, and for, it's, it only gets bigger and bigger, to, to my amazement. <laughs> Well, that'll be a conversation for another time. But uh, thank you
0: again, Mike Swanson, for coming on Parallax Views. Always a pleasure.
1: You too, good talking with you. And, And your audience too.
0: Next up, Mickey Huff of Project Censored joins us to discuss Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2023, covering the top censored news stories of the past year. In the course of this conversation, we'll be talking about the problems with corporate media, big tech and surveillance capitalism, and how disinformation and propaganda can exist not only through foreign state-owned outlets, but also here in the US through the corporate media ecosystem. And we need to be very vigilant about that, argues Mickey Huff. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Mickey Huff of Project Censored. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that we always have join us at least once a year, if not twice. Uh, Mickey Huff of Project Censored they're telling you the news that we don't always hear about in the mainstream press and they're holding the corporate media's feet to the fire for decades now. How are you doing Mickey Huff? I am doing pretty well,
2: JG. Thanks so much for having me back on Parallax Views. It's uh it's always uh an interesting conversation with you. So there's no dull moments. You you do a lot of great um a lot of great work and it's an honor to, uh, be reinvited uh, on your program. So thanks for having me.
0: So Mickey, you have, uh, a new project censored book, state of the free press 2023, and you also have, uh, some other publishing efforts now. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure.
2: Thanks for the opportunity. Um, we, um, Andy Lee Roth and I with the project, uh, our associate director a couple of years ago, we, um, you know the, the project has already done a lot of different things since its inception in 1976, from the annual top censored stories list to the annual book on you know media analysis that uh, looks at deja vu or historically censored stories, or if a story is underreported one year, what happens to it five years later, right? So we kind of we do that al- analysis. We do junk food news analysis that Carl Jensen, our founder, coined. Um, a sensational, trivial news that 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 we don't really need to know, but tends to crowd out other important stories. News abuse that Peter Phillips um, created as an analytic framework to understand how corporate media distort and manipulate news stories as a form of propaganda. We also showcase independent outlets that do what we think are quality journalism, as well as the media democracy in action. So we also showcase solutions journalism and other types of work. We've got the uh, weekly radio show on Pacifica Radio, we've got several documentary films. Um, And we figured, well, we also publish a lot of other people's work, so why not create a publishing imprint? (laughs) So we created the Censored Press, which is an imprint, and we are partnered with our publisher Seven Stories Press. So now we're joined in this endeavor at the Censored Press. We've published two censored annual books so far, We have published this book, The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People. It's one of the only books that addresses critical media literacy education for middle school uh, up through high school and uh, good even for community college level. We've got study guides for that. We've got, you know, uh, video tutorials and, and workshops. So the censored press is really showcasing a lot of our educational work, our media literacy work. We also... And I'm telling you this for several reasons. Uh, (laughs) One, of course, is to answer your question and let your your viewers and listeners know what we're up to. The other is, is that I'm sure you'd be interested in having these folks on your program. And I'm pretty sure you've already had at least one of them on. We just published last week Kevin Gastola's book, Guilty of Journalism, the political case against Julian Assange. Um, It, in fact, got rave reviews in Harper's and... Uh, a few other places. And of course, Daniel Ellsberg himself refers to Gostola as a go-to source on the Assange case. Um, so that book is just out and coming out in um, May, maybe April, May is Going Remote, Adam Bessie and Pete Glanting's graphic journalism book about teaching during the pandemic, um, the sort of insidious nature of surveillance capitalism and higher education. Uh, there's a lot going on there, but So the the not short answer to your question is that we've been up to a lot. The Censored Press is our latest endeavor. You can learn more at censoredpress.org or to find out about any of the things that I just mentioned that we do and have been doing for a long time, you can go to projectcensored.org.
0: So with regards to State of the Free Press 2023, the the latest Project Censored uh, sort of roundup of the past year's news and censorship of the news, I think it's important that we talk about you know, the problem with you know corporate controlled media, um, uh, and the issues surrounding that, because we hear a lot about uh, oh, you know, foreign actors and and foreign propaganda. Uh we hear all about that now in the media. And I do think, you know, uh foreign countries have their own interests and and they'll do uh foreign propaganda. But we also have our own propaganda problem at home, uh when you have uh you know entire news outlets run by people like Jeff Bezos and these mega billionaires uh could you talk a little bit about that yeah actually you know you may have
2: noticed this year um in the we have a great forward by Heidi Bogosian talking about a lot of challenges that the the challenges uh of Americans to do journalism here we're 42nd on the press freedom index so that's that's a far cry from the we are number one exceptionalist ranting that we hear all the time about the united states Um, But Andy and I go on in the introduction to talk about the so-called free, scratch that, billionaire press, right? We don't really have a free press. And as um, the great media critic who had a column for The New Yorker for years in the mid-20th century, A.J. Liebling, once quipped, um, free press belongs only to those who can own one. Um, And of course, Liebling wasn't the first person his, his column, by the way, historically is really important. It was called The Wayward Press. Um, the one article I'm referring to from 1961 is called Do You Belong in Journalism? Um, I'm, I also have a historian hat as well as a media critic and other things on. And I think that history has a lot to teach us contextually, um, because even though what we're facing right now that you just described moments ago, J.G., it looks different Um Uh, There are specific elements of it that are unique to our current technological setting where we are in late stage capitalism in a news industry that's not run in the public interest. We'll bookmark that. But if you go back a century ago, this is all kicked off with Pulitzer and Hearst and the penny press and the reliance on advertising and uh, yellow journalism that really kind of discredited legitimate muckraking. Um, You know, the press was so um sensationalized a hundred years ago even that upton sinclair wrote the brass check um in fact published it and made it available without copyright and there were over one hundred and fifty thousand copies um that went out um and and sinclair was he didn't pull punches you know um he basically referred to (laughs) he referred to um chits, as they're called, that were issued to patrons at urban brothels. And he established an analogy between journalists and prostitutes beholden to the agenda, ideology and policies of the money elites that owned and controlled the press. Um, media scholars like Bob McChesney wrote about this years ago. I'm bringing it back up now um, because the Jeff Bezos... Um, you know, the handful of corporations that control the legacy press plus now big tech. We have Bezos in that with Amazon. We have Elon Musk at Twitter. We've got Zuckerberg at Meta. We've got Alphabet, Google, YouTube, Instagram. All of these are part of this. They're the new architecture of censorship. And we can't lose sight of the fact, as you pointed out, that this is an ownership problem. News, as an industry isn't historically profitable unless it serves certain interests and those usually aren't the public interest and so what we've done in the intro is we unpack this and we name a lot of folks that own you know major newspapers and by the way we are also simultaneously in a news desert crisis where there's been because of conglomerate uh, news conglomerates and big corporations gobbling up more and more news outlets there are fewer news outlets in smaller areas and so a lot of towns in the United States don't have local journalism anymore. They have news deserts. And that what happens is corporations kind of they'll come in and sort of like pepper the the quote news market with what they think are the stories. But it's, it's a lot of astroturfing and it's a lot of commercialism and they don't really report on, on things from the community base or community interest or perspective. So. There's a really big problem, whether it's Wall Street, big pharma, big tech, big ag, the military industrial complex, the drivers of the economy were the ones also simultaneously fueling the major media outlets who got their cash from ad revenues and investments. And that's a model that works directly against the public interest. And we outline that yet again in the book. But we also talk about another problem jointly. It's not just the owners and the corruption and conflicts of interest. It's also the fact that after the 2016 election, the United States erupted into this moral panic over fake news, as if it's new, right? Fake news is nothing new, but um, we got really animated about it after the 2016 election, when the Democrats were spinning away trying to figure out how Hillary Clinton won yet lost to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump never lets a good uh, tragedy go to waste. For the Democrats, uh, to to paraphrase Rahm Emanuel, he took the phrase uh, uh, fake news and weaponized it and called the press the enemy of the people, which causes a moral panic over the crisis in journalism, which is actually pretty misguided. The way in which that the establishment is trying to rectify the declining trust, public trust in establishment journalism is by trying to police mis- and disinformation. Um, And what we believe is necessary is a more independent, robust, less billionaire owned press, one in the public interest, coupled with a robust educational campaign in civic education and critical media literacy. Um, Maybe not the sexiest of subjects and topics for us, but we know what the problems are and we know what we could do about them. Um, We just have to try to be able to implement these things. So look, I'm going to take a pause here and have you get in a word on your own show edgewise um, because I could go on and on about this, but I'd rather have you sort of guide me where
0: you want to go today, JG. Well, I wanted to ask you, and, and I don't want to go through every story. I know you were, uh loath to do that when you're interviewed and, and people True. are like, oh, can you go through this story and this one? But there are some stories in here that I just did not hear about in the mainstream media. So uh, the chapter on uh, former neo-Nazi leader now holds DOJ domestic counterterrorism position. And then another one, the human mind as the quote-unquote new domain of war, NATO plans for cognitive warfare. Maybe you could tell us a bit about these uh, stories that we really haven't been hearing about in the media.
2: Well, it's interesting. You know, we we hear about... um... Russian Nazis, maybe Ukrainian Nazis, but not often um but we don't hear about our own and you know, so the one story and look this is this is not you know this this isn't you know a brand new story per se there've been numerous stories over the years covered in the independent or alternative media about um really kind of alarming numbers of white supremacists or Um, racists or people that want to meet out violence on certain communities of color and so on in the United States, you know, joining law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. But this this goes really to high levels, right? The uh, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security. I think it's I think the American public has a right to know when certain people with certain characteristics are appointed to such extraordinary positions of power and authority almost invisibly. And, And look, I count you as a very media savvy, very media literate, very well-read, highly educated person. And uh, it doesn't matter, I'll talk to a bunch of you, and I mean, I kind of at least fancy myself part of that. And there's things I don't hear of, right? When I'm reviewing the stories with students every year, there's things that I run into. So while on one hand it is somewhat surprising that you haven't heard of these stories, that really goes to show the extent to which we don't know things that we ought to know, even those of us that pay attention, right? Even those of us that really seek out to broaden our news diets and and really try to look behind the curtain to see the things that are happening that we're missing. We all miss something. And this is part of what we do at Project Censored, which is we don't like to finger wag people for having, you know, maybe a a, a corporate media diet. We like to show them what happens when they expand it or when they get information like these kinds of stories that really matter. You know, the the NATO story, the human mind is new domain of war, NATO plans for cognitive warfare. I don't know if you know this. It won't shock me if you do. Um, but part of that moral panic of fake news um, planted the seeds for a lot of efforts, what looked like well-intentioned efforts to... Combat disinformation or misinformation. Misinformation being erroneous information that gets out there um, maybe by accident or somebody didn't realize it. Disinformation being on purpose to as propaganda, um, both happen. Um, but there was an effort to sort of, hey, we need to police that information. And so organizations like Snopes and Fact Check, um, you know, PolitiFact. Uh, they kind of came out and said, well, we're going to fact check stories for you. Well, that should give us red flags immediately because no source of fact checking is objective, number one. And number two, I don't feel comfortable about outsourcing my own critical faculties to other nebulous organizations. Now, some folks may say, well, PolitiFact was part of a journalistic outfit and so on, but Snopes wasn't. Um, It was just a private company with its own problems. Um, Yeah, I say that's great for maybe some help Or if that's what gets people thinking critically about media, that's great. Kind of like Wikipedia maybe gets people thinking about sources behind subjects, but they're not one-stop shops or be-all end-alls. And one of the issues that we've noticed is that organizations that quote, fight censorship like PEN America or others, They were really quick to adopt corporate solutions like NewsGuard that are big tech, uh, you know, big tech, quote, solutions that are run by former government spooks, people from the CIA, big tech, DARPA companies. I mean, these are not people that have the truth in mind. They have certain agendas to peddle. So back to NATO. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, one of their, uh, their PR wing is called the Atlantic Council. Meta and Facebook actually employed them to be fact checkers. So how objective is NATO? Well, they went one further. NATO now is funding its own media literacy initiative. And get this, there are some media literacy organizations that are working with NATO because they think this is just a great idea. Um, NATO somehow is, a, is an unbiased, objective source of fact-checking to teach media literacy to people. Uh, I mean, it's just absolutely preposterous. But what's what's good about this story, too, from the gray zone, uh, Ben Norton, is it talks about uh, how these organizations, whether it's NATO, foreign governments, big tech companies, they know that there's a war on for your mind. And I'm not riffing on Alex Jones and InfoWars. Um, but there is, and, and we, in our book, United States of Distraction, we talked about, uh, people like Renee Deresta and new knowledge and other people, people that were specifically worried about Russian disinformation, which is, which is a thing, but not disinformation in general. Right. So, you know, when you're a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. So if you're only looking for Russian disinformation, you're going to ignore or not see, Other major campaigns, in fact, the United States government even just got busted this last year with their own foreign disinformation and misinformation campaigns that then get recycled as news stories back home. So there is a serious issue uh, uh, regarding information integrity. There is a crisis of trust in journalism when people refer to journalism as the legacy or establishment press. What we focus on is the independent alternative press, which while it has its biases and has its issues, it doesn't have the same overarching top-down hierarchical type of, of mechanisms that are part of it. And we highlight these independent stories, like you just mentioned, J.G., you won't see these stories in the New York Times or you won't see them at CNN because they're not flattering to the establishment that they serve. Right. And that is a form of censorship that we have focused on a project censored since 1976. And it really morphs into what we think is the more insidious and pernicious and far more pervasive form is not prior restraint where there's government censorship, though we know there is. Whether it's the Twitter files or Trump trying to get Jimmy Kimmel fired uh, or WikiLeaks, right? Julian Assange and the trove of cables that Chelsea Manning and others leaked out that we know the government is engaging in censorship, More problematic yet than that is what we call censorship by proxy, where censorship is undertaken by private corporations, which exceed the usual legal limits on governmental censorship, right? Meaning prior restraint is about government, not business. But that censorship undertaken by private corporations that's called a news decision, quote unquote, actually serves the corporate shareholding and government interests as third parties, so it's censorship by proxy. The government didn't take RT America off the air. Roku and DirecTV did, right? The government didn't have to say anything. Did the federal government love it last year when Russia illegally invaded Ukraine to stifle left voices of dissent? RT America has a propaganda problem. So does the BBC. So does NPR, PBS. So does that fill in the blanks. They all have their biases, you pointed out a moment ago. But we're only worried about Russia. <laughs> Right. So the BBC is fine and these other places are fine, but we got to get rid of Russia. The government didn't have to do anything. All all they had to do is nod and be like, look, this is a problem. What shows are they getting rid of? Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Hedges, political comedian Lee Camp, uh, anti-war journalist uh, Empire Files, Abby Martin. People who are critical of the Western establishment and critical of American capitalism and foreign policy were given voices at RT America because – they weren't getting voices here. So they have to go to these other outlets in order to counter the establishment
0: propaganda here. That's well, not, not only yeah. that, but you, you mentioned someone like Abby Martin. Abby hasn't been at RT for years for now. Years. I think she left in like 2014 or something.
2: She did, yeah, totally. Yet she was mentioned in the Director of National Intelligence report after the 2016 election as one of the reasons why Clinton lost. Right. I mean, it just boggles the mind, the degree to which that what our government and our corporate press engage shamelessly in propaganda and censorship of its own sort around the clock. And what we try to do at Project Censored is call it out wherever we see it. The dog and pony show in Congress last week with Matt Taibbi. Um, You see, the Democrats are only curious about Trump. They're only curious about Musk. They're only curious about Russian disinformation. The problem that they have with Taibbi is that not only has he already dealt with those problems, he's now dealing with the Democrats and they don't like it. And yes, is it problematic the way those documents were leaked from Musk or whomever at Twitter to Taibbi? Yes. Has Taibbi admitted it? Yes. Has Glenn Greenwald also said that there's issues with how that's gone on and he may not even have taken them up on the offer if he was invited? Yes. Yet Greenwald and Taibbi are routine whipping boys of the Democratic Party and now many on the progressive left because they didn't stop at that line. They kept going and criticizing Adam Schiff, democratic manipulation of information, the Biden's F- Biden's FBI putting the thumb on the scales of social media, squelching the Re- New York Post report on Biden's laptop, you name it. Censorship is a problem across the spectrum, it's a problem of the powerful and they wield their influence to prevent the public from knowing and understanding what's happening. This whole thing about putting on a show about how they're opposed to censorship, uh, because it's only something that happens over there. These people are dishonest brokers. They need to look in the mirror and realize that they are active participants in propaganda and censorship themselves. And we should call out every element of it from anywhere we see it.
0: So, Something I wanted to get into. I, I don't want to get too much into the the, the congressional hearing with um, Taibbi. I you know I have uh, mixed views on it in some ways. Yeah. Uh, because I, you know, like w- with regards to the Biden story, I get the argument. Oh, you know, if we're releasing dick pics of uh, you know Joe Biden's son, that's like revenge porn. I I totally get where people are coming from on that. However, at the same time, uh, you know, I'm seeing this term pop up now called malinformation. That is coming up. In addition to uh, misinformation and disinformation, and some of the people who are in the the what's been called the disinformation research community will say, "Oh, well, malinformation just revert, refers to information that is hacked or uh, put out there as revenge porn." But I'm looking at a website right now, um, Media Defense dot org, which is a non governmental organization established in 2008. To provide legal assistance to journalists citizen journalists and independent media institutions their definition of malinformation is much broader and to me very scary they define malinformation not as you know revenge porn or hacked materials they define malinformation as information that is based on reality but is used to inflict harm on a person organization or country and to me, that's such a broad definition for a term. How could you possibly have debate then? I mean, I could see that term getting picked up by, you know, uh, Trump publicans who will say, oh, that's just malinformation being used against me. I mean, where are we at when it comes to these new terms that are popping up that seem to be used to stifle debate?
2: Yeah, so you're talking about uh, a UK group that's funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, the Ford Foundation um let's see who else here yeah so this is an establishment front group that is in the guise of fighting quote fake news misdisinformation malinformation this is a Trojan horse for censorship. As you just illustrated, it can easily be used by certain parties to squelch anti establishment, anti imperialist voices.
0: Real, real quick, real quick, just to give an example. So, that definition of malinformation, uh, information that is based on reality but is used to inflict harm on a person, organization, or country, that could have been used against Daniel Ellsberg when he released the Pentagon Papers. They could have said, well, this is malinformation. It hurts the Pentagon, and it it's hurts still- US credibility.
2: It still could be used against Daniel Ellsberg because he just announced not long ago that when Chelsea Manning leaked the cable WikiLeaks cables, leaked the cables to WikiLeaks to Julian Assange, that he was party to the transaction, meaning he had access to that information. And Julian Assange is now rotting in prison in Belmarsh right, awaiting some purported extradition under the Espionage Act that that Kevin Costola writes about in this book that we just published, Guilty of Journalism, Ellsberg said, well, come get me. I've got the information. I'm a leaker. I've done these things. So they won't come get him because they realize that he has significant and extraordinary uh, high profile position in American society that he had to fight for, lost his job over, won the New York Times case against Nixon won another case against Nixon, but was targeted. I mean, they tried to get him for years and years.
0: Right. Yeah, there and, was there was an attempt to break into his psychiatrist's office. Yes. And, and get dirt on him through psychiatric Absolutely, files. That's right. And look,
2: we the same time. That that was happening, anti-war protesters and journalists broke in to an office in media, Pennsylvania, of all places. And inadvertently, as they were trying to disrupt the draft efforts, discovered documents proving the FBI's counterintelligence programs against American citizens, right? Then it goes all the way up through Nixon's enemy list that Ellsberg was on, and he called him the most dangerous man in America. Well, here we are 50 odd years. We're 50 years later, and we're still having this fight about Julian Assange, about the right to know and by the way, those same legacy outlets that protected Ellsberg then have turned on Julian Assange. They they not only turned on him and, and threw him under the bus, they used the information from him to win awards for journalism themselves as they didn't protect him when he needed it. And it's only now, Johnny Come Lately, they jump on the bandwagon because things are looking extraordinarily grim for Assange right now. So I don't have a soft spot for the Times and the Post and some of these establishment outlets that are now saying, look, well, we now realize that you know, if he's prosecuted under the Espion object, we're all probably gonna be in some kind of trouble. Well, JG, malinformation sounds a lot like we're gonna be getting everybody into trouble, including you and me. We'll be cellmates somewhere. Um, this is extremely problematic because it looks well-intentioned, it's extremely problematic. That's why I use the term Trojan horse. It's a trope. It's overused. It's cliche. But this is exactly what it is. It's a way to get the public to believe that things are under control. There's a dangerous world out there. It's the paternalistic narrative. We need the smart people to come and rescue us. Walter Lippmann, Eddie Bernays, propaganda, manufacturing consent. It's 100 years ago all over again, right? It's just now the battlefield for the mind has has been digitized it's online it's platformed where it can be controlled algorithmically shadow banned uh we can target certain people for certain kinds of information over others so the whole architecture of censorship has actually expanded and become more complicated it has not gone away
0: so this gets into an important issue and i'll reference one of the chapters in your book uh one of the top stories Uh, You have a whole chapter on repression of Palestinian media, and this ties into a bigger issue of uh, digital suppression of alternative news, right? So uh, in this story, right, uh, between May 6th and May 18th, 2021, the Arab Center for the Advancement of Social Media documented 500 cases of digital rights violations targeting Palestinians. There are cases in which social media platforms deleted stories, hit hashtags, and restrict it or completely suspend it accounts, often the request of Israel's cyber unit. So we're seeing how big tech is being used to suppress Palestinian media and Palestinian voices. Can you talk a little bit about this bigger issue of how big tech can be used in a censorious kind of big brother way?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is one example of many, but the Palestinians have been targeted repeatedly. The U.S. gives billions of dollars in aid and military aid to Israel every year. Uh, part of that goes to suppress these kinds of stories. Minar um, Adley at Mint Press News, Alan McLeod—they've reported on these issues for years. They've been direct targets of both Israeli IDF infiltration as well as smear campaigns and anti-Semitic smear campaigns for reporting on the apartheid state of Israel and Palestine. And um, we, by the way. Um, The Censored Press has signed on next year, uh, in addition to doing Peter Phillips' follow-up to Giants called Titans on the global power elite, we're doing a book by Omar Zaza on surveillance capitalism in Palestine. It's about this very issue that you're talking about here, that's story 15 this year, that was covered by The Intercept, Middle Eastern Eye, The Jordan Times. Um, This is a significant issue around Palestinian media because they're an oppressed people. But the big tech tools being used to do it can be used across the spectrum and they are being used across the spectrum. They are being used to silence voices from the West Bank to the Horn of Africa um, and domestically here at home where the Biden administration had the audacity to create what they called a disinformation governance board that was officially short lived because it was such an Orwellian Many true um, that both the right and the left came at it and saying, like, this is theater, man. You got to be kidding. And they put some, uh, you know, influencer who claimed to be a disinformation expert who, surprise, surprise, their only interest was Russia. Right. And look, I'll just say this one time to get it out of the way. Is Russia problematic? Yes. Are Putin and the oligarchs and their war machine problematic? Yes. Yes. Are they oppressive against journalists and LGBTQ people? And are they illegally killing people in Ukraine? Yes, yes, yes. Should we resist it and stand up against it? Yes. Now that that's out of the way, we can also talk about how that's not the only problem. We have our own information control problems. We're 42nd in press freedom in this country. We can't blame Putin for that. We have a big tech sector that shadow bans, controls, PayPal demonetizes, YouTube demonetizes people. They were monetizing LGBTQ channels. They demonetized Mint Press News. PayPal demonetized Consortium News by the late great Robert Perry, who broke the Iran Contra story. I mean, this is real. These are real efforts. So the more and more we get to the digital currency and the digital platforms, the more that's all switched on and off right? Ford just talked about creating a car that they can just turn off if you don't make your payments on time. This is the bizarre, brave new world where Huxley met Orwell, right, in this hellscape of a dystopia that's called 2023. And we're fast getting there. So big tech is a real serious problem that we are only beginning to unpack, JG.
0: I just wanted to add something to that since you were talking about the disinformation uh, governance board, uh, you were you were referring to Mia Jankovits, and uh, I actually took it upon myself to uh, read through her book on disinformation, uh, which no one seems to have done. Uh, but I have my disagreements with her. I don't think she has the right answers for things. Definitely not when it comes to um, corporate media. But it was really interesting reading her book because she sort of cops to something that you just said. She says that not every problem can be put on Russia. Something like Black Lives Matter is an organic problem. Now there may be a a media outlet affiliated with a foreign country that tries to amplify those divisions. But if we really wanted to deal with, you know, the issues in our country that cause domestic tensions, you know, we can't blame Russia. We have to deal with the issues related to uh, racial tensions and and Black Lives Matter and the, the treatment of Black Americans. Those are real issues that aren't caused by Russia. And even Mia Jankovic talks about that in her book.
2: And so does Doresta and some of the others that are really hardcore about Russia. They'll admit these things on the back pages or you read the 300 page book and you'll see that, well, there's something else going on here. But that's not usually the PR, the public persona or the bullet talking points that you get from these people, nor is it how they're publicly kind of touted. Now, you hit on something very historic, J.G., and other people in our history, warts and all, Republican President Dwight Eisenhower... With his horrifically draconian vice president Richard Nixon, Jan John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, literally Warts and all, um, they knew that they couldn't blame America's racial problem on Russia, and it was undermining the efforts to fight the Cold War. So curiously, we have had previous presidents that actually pursued civil rights movements and civil rights solutions to get ahead of that curve. I mean, if you think 200 years is ahead, meaning they're slow to catch up, but they wanted to do something about it because it made us look bad on the international stage. You can't decry the evils of Soviet communism while you're beating black people with sticks and dogs here. You can't do it. And Nixon and Johnson couldn't fight in Vietnam, which is another racist imperial war. But he couldn't, he couldn't say we were fighting for freedom over there if whole swaths of the country didn't have it here, right? And I think that that's another point here that we're 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 losing, is that historically we have been able to address external threats and differentiate them from internal ones. And we have more to do with our own self-caused uh, challenges than, say, the challenges created by others. And again, that's not to say that the uh, gl- on the global stage, the current strife that we now witness is all the fault of Russia. I mean, Russia is guilty of plenty of things, but so too is NATO. So too is the US and its encroachment and global hegemony and military bases in over 130 countries. So, too, are the interests of of China. Uh, We could go on and on, but I think it's important to recognize that we should be responsible for our own information infrastructure. We're the ones that should be responsible for what we're seeing and reading. And if we think that there's too much Russian influence, right, we need to A, prove it, which they didn't do even the companies that the Senate Intelligence Committee relied upon, CrowdStrike, they said they didn't have the evidence. Right. It was
0: like circumstantial. Well, and I was really- going to add, too, we also got snookered, right? Like yeah. we, we got snookered by companies like I believe it was Orbis uh, that was involved with the still dossier. And, you know, it turned yeah. out the still dossier was nonsense. Yeah. And they were a private organization that was trying to please their clients. In this case, it started with them trying to work for the Republicans against Trump and then eventually the Democrats. But they were just giving out bogus information to please their clients and make money.
2: Yeah. In other words, you know, we have our own problems in American journalism like that, like Judy Miller at The New York Times coming up on 20th anniversary of the monumental lies fed through the CIA asset Ahmed Chalabi for uh, spreading the weapons of mass deception right, about the, the Iraq possessing weapons and two thirds of Americans erroneously believing Saddam Hussein was responsible for the crimes in 9-11. Just sheer hogwash built on a pack of lies sold by Colin Powell, who, by the way, tried to cover up the Milai massacre that Cy Hirsch broke in the Vietnam War. So his whole swan song was the lie about Iraqi WMDs. Over two million dead Iraqis and seven million refugees later were 20 years on from those lies. We have our own series of problems and media clients that try to serve the military industrial complex rather than the public. That's the problem. The Steele dossier is like a microcosm of our own media system about how it pleases its owners and pleases its advertisers. And it just shits on the American public. Worse, it divides us in ways that make debate, discussion, discourse, empathy, reciprocity, empathetic listening, and agreeable disagreements impossible impossible right and it's by design because we're harder to mobilize when we're dis- when we're at each other's throats and the media just loves to sow the divisive uh the divisive narrative because they have their own divisive audiences fox has its guaranteed one or two million a night msnbc has their own cottage industry every night on they go back and forth each of the own audiences thinks the other audience is crazy and uh, susceptible to fake news That's not journalism. That's a for-profit propaganda system that is not based in the public interest and it is further wrecking and destroying the social and political fabric of this country. Nolan Higdon and I wrote about it in the United States of Distraction. We wrote about solutions and let's agree to disagree. Um, We know these problems are real, but we also know what we can do about them. And education is a real part of that solution along with having access to a truly robust and independent press.
0: Just I know I know we're short on time, but the one last thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, one of the concerns I have right now is so we have a mainstream press that is for profit and you know uh, it's it's about making money and keeping the ratings up. I sometimes worry that that could happen uh, with alternative media. I think sometimes people are more interested in hearing the debates between the different oh you know uh, this personality, Cenk Yuger versus Max Blumenthal. And they're not really interested in the information. Uh, Do you think we're also facing uh, problems where the alternative media could, you know, become more of like a circus the way the mainstream media is? And how can we prevent that?
2: I think you're right about that. And there's a lot of examples we could point to. Um, And I think that really what this comes back to is the fact that we don't have a robustly publicly funded system of journalistic dissemination of information we have plenty of for profit partisan outlets we have plenty of things that resemble carnival barking at a three ring circus um what we don't we have plenty of opinion what we don't have are enough um transparently sourced reporters about facts about very inconvenient facts um we we don't have uh often in the establishment press, certainly, but even in the alternative media, we we don't have all the time people modeling civil discourse. Um, we don't have people modeling civil courage. Um, you know, we have a sort of a gotcha culture where we like to question the motives of whistleblowers rather than just look at the material that they're making publicly available. Um you know, I I think that in many ways what we see happening in the podcast world so to speak which is blown up and it's become incredibly um you know popular these these independent forums here we are on one right um i think they're good but i also think that we need to equally scrutinize them for the same
0: reasons we scrutinize the corporate press yeah
2: and i I think
0: too i think we sometimes need to get beyond you know i'll hear people say oh so-and-so from this alternative media show said this, therefore I'm dismissing it because I don't like them. Uh, and, and you know, people do that with all kinds of characters and we get caught up in the cult of personality yes. rather than the information itself, which needs to be analyzed. critically Bingo. too,
2: yeah. Bingo, you hit it, that's it. I couldn't say it any better myself. We've been saying that for years, that the New York Times may report some amazing things and do incredible journalism sometimes, They may turn around and engage in their own kind of malinformation, right? Mis and disinformation. They may straight up lie. You know, they were cheerleaders of the Iraq war 20 years ago and paid no consequences for it. And, you know, that's that's what we like to remember at Project Censored. Um, And while we remember the failures of the of the Fourth Estate and the establishment press, we also acknowledge when they do good reporting, And we especially acknowledge the role that independent media could play in helping source and feed information to these larger platforms so that they can be attuned to it. You you live in D.C., you live in New York, you live in L.A., you live in Chicago. You don't know what's going on in East Palestine, Ohio, where I I grew up 30 minutes from there. You don't know what's going on in, in the West Bank. You're not there. That's what makes independent journalism, alternative journalism so important is that it comes from the grassroots, from people involved in these issues that can report on things with a level of integrity and expertise that the other outlets just can't, they can't emulate. And so they fake it till they make it. Right. And my suggestion to them is don't fake it, earn it and take the help of independent outlets and broaden your coverage. You know, uh, some of the best partnerships that I've seen are between ProPublica and the New York Times. Is it problematic? Yes. But when they team up together, they have done some extraordinary investigative journalism. That's bar none.
0: I was gonna say we're seeing it right now with uh the Guardian and um Forbidden Stories in France covering the Team Jorge story with the yeah. Israeli private contractors. So yeah, partnerships right. are very important. Yeah, and you
2: know, this is again more complicated, and as we wrap up our our conversation as as we often do uh, on optimistic or, or positive notes, um, we got our work cut out for us, but it's important that, and we do this at Project Censored in our book every year, these top 25 stories and the analysis therein isn't just about a failing media, it's about media that works in the public interest. And if, as Ralph Nader says, any of these big newsrooms around the US or wherever having a slow day and wanna go talk to the Kardashians, pick up this book instead and go leaf to any of the stories in the top 25, because guess what? As of publication, you didn't cover it. So there you have it. You know, we are not just supposed to be the hecklers, you know, the old hecklers in the gallery at the Muppet show. We're also in the pit. We're playing along with the music. We're up on the stage with all the actors. We're trying to be part of a media ecosystem Uh, that is diverse, that does showcase differing points of view, and that bases itself on the integrity of information, transparently sourced facts. And we all have to agree at the end of the day that even when we are looking at things that aren't favorable to us or our views, we need to think critically, we need to listen um, with empathy, and we need to build bridges, not walls, when it comes to some of the chief challenges that we face as a society, because we're not going to do it from the privacy of our our little echo chambers and media silos behind our
0: keyboards. Well, thank you again, Mickey Huff. And I hope everyone checks out Project Censored. Listen to the Project Censored radio show and pick up State the Free Press 2023. Thanks again, Mickey.
2: Thanks, man. Thanks for all the great work you do. It's always a pleasure to be on.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with the Wall Street Windows' Mike Swanson and Project Censored's Mickey Huff. And as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time. You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. Michael. To Parallax Views with J.G. Michael. With J. 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 J.
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. That's to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem.